1: The Guardian.
0: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. On this podcast, as you know, we talk always about the US. This week, I thought we'd talk about something slightly different, which is us. In fact, us and the US, specifically how The Guardian has covered the United States of America all this time. And when I say all this time, it is, of course, 200 years. You can't have missed that it is The Guardian's 200th birthday. We've been celebrating it all month. And I thought it would be good to walk through the history of The Guardian with somebody who has pole position in watching it unfold right now. And that is David Smith, who is the Washington Bureau Chief of The Guardian, and, of course, familiar voice on this podcast as he guided us so often through the maze of the 2020 election. It turns out that The Guardian's passage through these last two centuries has not always been smooth. Big changes, though, for The Guardian because now it has a large audience in the United States itself. I've talked about my own time as a correspondent in Washington. Back when I was doing the job, our audience was pretty well confined to Britain. So I began my conversation with David Smith by asking him, what's it like to be a correspondent in America, writing about America for so many Americans?
1: Yes, it is very different to be a foreign correspondent uh, in America or indeed anywhere in the world uh, today. And I I first experienced this as the uh, Africa correspondent based in South Africa, where I noticed um, any article I wrote would get immediate uh, scrutiny from uh south africans um and obviously it's an immediate uh fact check if you get something wrong and uh it goes out on on twitter and in america that's magnified um even more so you're walking this line of assuming some knowledge on the part of the reader but uh not necessarily complete knowledge and, and one way we have sometimes thought about it is um just to get rid of our british history and baggage, um, you know, how would you make the story interesting for somebody sitting in a cafe in Berlin? Uh, how do you give it international residence? And certainly one of the things I have found curiously is that sometimes when I try to write about the, the big picture for an international audience, some of the most enthusiastic responses come from Americans themselves. They, they actually like seeing that, uh, that wider context uh, that perhaps they don't get in American media where where too much knowledge is assumed or the the nose is pressed too close to the glass.
0: It's obviously working because the Guardian in the US, you know, back obviously when interest was huge at election time, incredibly, there were close to 5.8 million, close to 6 million browsers. That's the measure, unique browsers, but essentially different pairs of eyeballs each day and I think the audience over the month was topping 116 million people I mean for a paper and we're going to talk about the history the paper that began really by its own description as a provincial English newspaper the Manchester Guardian to have got to this point it is quite something and so it is obviously working a curiosity I found I began my Guardian career actually in America and I found that the name the Manchester Guardian lived on in the United States much longer than it did in Britain, because in Britain, everyone had got used to the Guardian. But there were people in America who still would refer to it as the Manchester Guardian. And it would open up doors in the oddest places, including in New Hampshire. For the New Hampshire primary, the main city of New Hampshire, as some people may know, is Manchester. And in New Hampshire primary, it became very advantageous to describe yourself as being (laughs) from the Manchester Guardian. I don't know whether you've ever pulled off that trick. (laughs) I I
1: did go to Manchester, New Hampshire in... um 2016. But but sadly, I, I think the effect has worn off a bit now. However, I'm really glad you mentioned that point, because one of the key reasons for that appeared to be that um, there was something called The Guardian, which was a, a left-wing weekly publication in New York. So it became important to call us The Manchester Guardian as a, as a point of differentiation. And so even today, I think sometimes talk to older Americans who uh, say, oh, yes, the, the Manchester Guardian, they're still familiar with it. And I am um, looking at some congressional directories from the 1970s. I noticed that our correspondents at uh, the US Captain Washington were, were actually listed as Manchester Guardian rather than Guardian.
0: There we are. I did not know that little bit of history. That now explains something which definitely was a feature of my early Guardian life. And now you've explained it. So let's talk about it. The founding in 1821, we've been covering that extensively across uh, in, in the print newspaper and on the website and and obviously it, it, on the podcasts. The founding of it has an American link, of course, because it was founded by John Edward Taylor, the son of a cotton merchant, and was always seen as being the paper of the Manchester cotton trade. That automatically had a resonance and an impact in terms of how The Guardian Saw America and commented upon America. Just talk us through that.
1: Yes, the power of big cotton in Manchester. Basically, those origins of the Guardian mean it would almost, uh, you know, some of the some of its financial backers, the cotton and textile traders, would almost certainly have traded with cotton plantations in America that used um, enslaved labour. This was highlighted last year during the. American and global reckoning over racial injustice with the Black Lives Matter movement. And the, uh, the Scott Trust commissioned some independent researchers to investigate uh, any potential links between the Guardian and the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, that, that report is not yet out. And and there's a through line from this, the just the association of the Guardian with Big Cotton, uh, right through, of course, to the American Civil War, where the the Confederacy was fighting to preserve slavery. The Guardian um, sided with the, the cotton mills and the manufacturers against uh, workers in Manchester who refused to, to handle cotton picked by enslaved people. And when it came to the Civil War itself, the Guardian certainly did not cover itself uh, with glory. It really was on the wrong side of history. Um, now, to be clear, it had always been uh, opposed to, to slavery itself, uh, but it did not think that a victory for the North in the Civil War would necessarily end slavery. But another strand of Guardian thought was also, was always um, supporting liberation, uh, separatist uh, movements. So it felt that the, the South had a right to try and uh, break away um, from the Union and uh, had some pretty nasty things to say about uh, Abraham Lincoln, even after his uh, death, his assassination, of course, in 1865 at the end of the war.
0: Yeah, no, but as you say, he, he did run those very hostile editorials about Abraham Lincoln. And your uh, Guardian piece did quote one of them, describing his time in office as a series of acts abhorrent to every true notion of constitutional right and human liberty. Very rare to hear a bad word spoken about Abraham Lincoln, but somehow the Guardian managed it. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was only a few years after those events that the Guardian, and, and, and as you wrote, in a way the Guardian of today, a more liberal and progressive voice, began to emerge under the editorship of the man I described the other day as all-round Guardian legend, C.P. Scott, who took over as editor in 1872. And and so you, you've had some very interesting things to say about that, how the Guardian's position on America plays out in the Scott period, and in a way the incredible access that C.P. Scott enjoyed as the editor and 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 top man at The Guardian in that incredible 57-year span?
1: One of the things that most surprised me in researching this article was that uh, I went into it with the assumption that, uh, OK, for most of its 200-year history, The Guardian was probably pretty small potatoes in America and not very widely known and uh, making a small impact and, and writing mainly for a British audience. But my, my assumptions were turned on their head in that um, I discovered the Guardian always carried quite a lot of clout uh, from the CP Scott era onwards, was, was well known. Um, and certainly at least in places like New York and Washington, correspondents had tremendous access all the way up to the to White House itself and, and frankly, better access uh, 100 years ago and 50 years ago than, than I do today um, in the White House briefing room. A couple of examples of that, C.P. Scott, uh, he uh, had a private meeting uh, with President Woodrow Wilson uh, in Manchester in uh, 1918 at the end of the First World War. A few decades later, the editor of The Guardian, Alistair Hetherington, came to Washington, uh, sat down with President John F. Kennedy to get a, a major debrief on what had happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Uh, Vice President Lyndon Johnson was part of that as well. I think that partly happened because The Guardian's Washington correspondent at the time, uh, a Canadian journalist called Max Friedman, was a a close personal friend of uh, John F. Kennedy. I have uh, selected as the title of my remarks tonight, the president and the press. Some may suggest that this would be more naturally worded, the president versus the press, but those are not my sentiments tonight. Kennedy used to joke to him calling the Guardian, the Manchester Guardian, the, the dead letter box. Periodically asked him if he could still carry Manchester by a huge majority. He said it was a, a genuine friendship, even though Kennedy knew that the Manchester Guardian was not going to get any votes uh, for, for, for him.
0: I I have to just chip in with that because that is amazing about the how many votes in Manchester. When I I mentioned New Hampshire, in 1996, I was covering the New Hampshire uh, primary on the Republican side. Bob Dole, still with us, was the candidate then. Uh, he, He was doing a little tour of a small town in New Hampshire. I began asking my question the moment he heard a British accent come out of my mouth. He snapped no votes in liverpool and moved on to the next question <laughs> in other words there was no point in even hearing my question because he had no voters in liverpool that's amazing that the that, the, that he was made jokes with max Friedman about carrying manchester it, it just shows you the same logic lives on even if uh, on its head
1: and i and i think particularly in election season now we still uh, at the Guardian can sometimes suffer the same phenomenon where it's obviously still harder for us to get interviews with presidential candidates than it is for the New York Times and, and Washington Post, and we're often either told explicitly or implicitly that uh, look, uh, we're less important than than even you know local TV stations in in battleground states. I, I think a couple of things in in play there for what's changed historically. Print newspapers uh, over the last 100 years have lost influence. But perhaps more importantly, my guess, my impression of all this was that, you know, particularly back in 1918 at the end of the war, and and still in the 60s, Britain still had tremendous international clout and and influence. And I, I suspect the decline of access for The Guardian and other British papers corresponds to a a decline of britain's influence um on the world um, stage uh all of that said on a, on a happier note i think the guardian has expanded in a more democratic direction in that uh you know while we no longer get personal briefings by the president on the latest crisis we are very much engaged and more than we used to be on uh, you know at the grassroots so uh, black lives matters protesters with uh environmental issues with a a whole lot of other things going on across the, the, you know, the the breadth of America.
0: Before we jump over it though, there's that period between C.B. Scott sitting with Woodrow Wilson and then Max Friedman palling around with his mate John F. Kennedy. That first half century of the 20th century, you've written very interestingly about this, about how how little, really, coverage there was of America in the Guardian, and, and 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 how it got by. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes, there was no regular Guardian correspondent um, in the U.S., um, so the paper was relying on uh, American journalists. Some of them quite well known at the time, and but they were working, you know, for U.S. titles, doing other things they were discouraged from filing too often for the guardian because of the the cost of uh, sending cables uh, across the uh, atlantic so it was you know a, a tricky operation and, and news would arrive very late sometimes days late about as a polar opposite about as different as you can imagine from today's uh, wired um, internet world of instant news
0: the the first big name I think that leaps out, uh, that is a household name um for his coverage of the United States is Alistair Cook, probably known still to most people as the BBC's man in America because of Letter from America. But Guardian readers know that he was our correspondent for a very long time and and really was a witness to some extraordinary events.
1: Yes. I suppose Alistair Cook is the best known Guardian figure in America. In the 20th century, he was at the paper for 25 years, uh, hammering away on a typewriter in a literally smoke-filled room in his apartment um, overlooking Central Park in in New York. We mentioned Max Friedman in Washington earlier. I mean, one one interesting wrinkle there was that uh, the two of them started out well, but then had a spectacular falling out there was a, a cold war between them uh, they refused to speak to each other and so um for, for several years uh all the editorial planning of who's going to cover what story had to be done through the guardian manchester office back in britain but cook was seen as a, a just a, a brilliant observer a brilliant uh writer um i interviewed his uh his daughter who's now living in vermont and. Uh, She uh, had strong memories of uh, the 1963 Kennedy assassination. A dark page in the annals of America has been written to the crack of an assassin's bullet. A nation mourns the world grieves. Cook had travelled extensively already that year, so he actually turned down a trip uh, offered by the White House to, to go and cover Kennedy's visit which at first glance, you would say this is like, you know, the record label turning down the Beatles or something, you know, missing the biggest story of his life. But but actually, in some ways, it worked to his advantage. Um, the reporters who were in Dallas that day were far behind Kennedy in the motorcade. They got redirected to another venue. They had no idea what had happened, and it was only when one of them checked into their office, they discovered the president's been shot and you can imagine how astonished their editors were what well, you're there and you don't know that uh, Alistair cook therefore had a huge time advantage he was sitting in his new york apartment he had a couple of televisions and he, he basically covered it off the tv with the uh, with the help of his uh, daughter who was still a young girl at the time and she was uh, monitoring the tv taking notes for him uh, when he got a call from the editor Uh, Worried about deadlines, demanding copy, Alistair Cook shouted, we're doing the best we can. And his daughter, to this day, is still absolutely delighted that he said we rather than I. It made her feel part of the the Guardian team that day. And indeed, Alistair Heddington, the editor, later sent her a, a thank you letter. A few years later, in 68, this time... Cook was at the scene for the assassination of uh, John F Kennedy's brother Robert who of course was uh, himself a presidential candidate uh, Cook was actually um in the room at the hotel in Los Angeles when Bobby Kennedy was shot and uh, had to had to scramble didn't even have his typewriter on him so it was frantically handwriting notes and uh calling the, the copy takers to, to take it down. And his his daughter, said, was, was very shaken uh, by the experience of what he saw um,
0: that day. You can just imagine. He was obviously right there for the big political events of the day and uh, somebody who was really friends with the great powers of the age. But there was a sense that he wasn't really across the sort of social upheavals that were beginning to grip America in the 1960s.
1: That's right, in particular... There seem to be some gaps in his coverage of uh, the civil rights uh, movement.
0: I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation.
1: Which obviously now when we look back, the 60s was the really critical period uh for for that with the uh, the march on washington the prominence of martin luther king ultimately his assassination and um and cook um many would argue didn't really get a handle on it uh, wasn't invested in it we sent a, uh, a man called william weatherby to cover the civil rights movement um which he did very well uh and weatherby himself uh, was an interesting character who uh among many things, uh, befriended uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, which he turned into a book. So The Guardian did get there, but it was certainly um, a point of worry for the editor, Alistair Hedrington, at, uh, at some point.
0: Let's uh, bring it more up to date into our own century. 9-11, a very striking Guardian front page, just a picture, a sort of so-called poster front page of the Twin Towers in Flames, and the words, a declaration of war. My fellow citizens. Followed immediately by the war on terror, the invasion of Iraq. To free its people and to defend the world from grave danger. And The Guardian took its very much its own position on that. And as somebody who was writing in that period, I remember then, that, that that to me was a turning point. I began even getting emails from readers in America saying, we can't get this kind of coverage here. Just tell us about what, what it was that The Guardian was doing in the first years of this century that actually the US media were not doing. I think
1: The Guardian was being true to itself as uh, sceptical and um, investigating and questioning and challenging um, authority, uh, including the U.S. government, and uh, that was really thrown into sharp relief by the Iraq War, uh, based on this uh, what turned out to be false claim of weapons of mass destruction uh, in, in Iraq. Um, there was a lot of cheerleading for it in the U.S. media, a lot of jingoistic uh, flag waving. One of my predecessors as the Washington correspondent um, Ewan McCaskill was quoted talking about a, a White House press conference in, in March uh, 2003 uh, with the journalists and, and George W. Bush. He said it was uh, it was almost like a prayer meeting, the sense that we're all on the, the same side. So I think the, um, the international media in general, The Guardian in particular, was seen as a, a much needed breath of fresh air asking questions that the American media wouldn't. Um, and of course, this coincided with the internet uh, really taking off, so Americans had access to this coverage. And you also saw really the first wave of political bloggers who uh, could could very quickly point out, uh, oh, look, look at this article in The Guardian, questioning things in a way that the American media is not.
0: And so things really did change. But perhaps this, all this interest in our journalism uh, from Americans in the United States slightly went to our head, perhaps with rather uh, unfortunate results in 2004.
1: Yes, um, it's been, a the whole thing's been an uneven journey. And um, <laughs> 2004, um, that same George W. Bush, uh, who we talked about, who uh, was running for re-election, he was tremendously unpopular abroad, including in Britain. So the Guardian thought, well, why don't we try and, help his opponent, uh, John Kerry, in that election. So The Guardian dreamed up a scheme where its readers would uh, lobby voters in uh, Clark County, Ohio, which was a crucial battleground state, to try and persuade them to vote for Kerry and not vote for Bush. Um, the idea was that Guardian readers would would partner with, with voters there. And it not, did not go down well. <laughs> mm. Um, It was seen as uh, epitomizing foreign British arrogance. People recall the Revolutionary War. It's the British trying to tell us what to do again. And so there was a a tremendous uh, backlash uh, and outcry in the media, in blogs. Uh, The Guardian was utterly inundated with letters and emails of complaints and uh, eventually sort of had to rather humiliatingly back down. And... um, Surprise, surprise, uh, on election day, uh, George W. Bush actually won uh, Clark County, Ohio.
0: And, and won it with a slightly bigger margin than he had yes. in 2000, which, uh, as you wrote, prompted speculation about there being a Guardian effect. If anything, the Guardian's intervention had possibly helped him and hurt John Kerry. Nevertheless, drawing, moving swiftly oh on and drawing a veil over that episode, the Guardian, undeterred, uh, did make a push into the United States with the foundation of what was initially called Guardian America uh, in 2007 uh, which uh, morphed in 2011 into the site we know today Guardian US now based in New York rather than Washington as uh, as the first iteration had been and it made an impact pretty quickly with the WikiLeaks investigation and then with the Edward Snowden cache of documents in 2013. Well, I'm now joined by Julian Smith, the Conservative MP for Skipton and Ripon, who asked the Prime Minister if action should be taken against newspapers who, quote, may have crossed the line on national security. Welcome to the programme. Where, amazingly, for really for a British newspaper, uh, the Guardian, along with the Washington Post, shared a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, is the effect of all of that been to mean that the Guardian is is viewed as a kind of, you know, regular media operation taking its place alongside? The Washington Post or NPR or Slate or whatever it is, do American consumers see The Guardian just as part of the media landscape there? Or is it still seen as this British newspaper doing something different in America?
1: You know, I think what's been the challenge and what's fun and what's interesting is that it's, it's often both. It's definitely seen now as a, a player in the US media landscape, as is the BBC and others. Uh, but it's also, yeah, sometimes seen as as British, as an outsider. And, and just anecdotally, the I mean, the, the British thing can be quite funny sometimes in that uh, when I was covering Donald Trump's uh, campaign rallies.
0: The fake media tried to stop us from going to the White House. But I'm president and they're not. Uh,
1: The crowd would be baying for media blood, talking about fake news and the enemy of the people. Uh, But when I strolled up with my notebook and pen asking to interview them, they were sweetness and charm itself. And I I think that was probably something to do with my British accent. Uh, They somehow divorced me from the American media pack of of CNN and the New York Times um, and and, and so on. In Washington now, um, The Guardian is part of the... White House uh, in-town print pool, which means once a month, one of us uh, follows the president wherever he goes and files regular updates on what he's doing. And, and those updates go to the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the all the American media. But I think, um, I mean, one other point worth making is um, one of my colleagues mentioned, as you would expect for several years, you know, the Guardian struggled to find its feet and was constantly trying to work out its identity in America. Is it it British? Is it American? Is a bit of both. But actually, as it's settled in and and, and found particular focus points, such as racial justice, uh, environmental justice, uh, many others, uh, it's actually become more Guardian rather than less. It's really become a uh, an expression of uh, the cp scott vision and all the editors who who came after um, a classic garden identity um in in america um, it, it actually covers really fundamental issues that uh that, that matter to people today
0: thank you so much as ever for being with us on the podcast and happy birthday to us
1: happy birthday to
0: us thank you And that is all from me for this week. Before I go, if you are a fan of the Big Short or Moneyball or Liar's Poker, any of those, you do have to listen back to Monday's episode of Today in Focus, where the author of those books, Michael Lewis, talks to Rachel Humphreys about his new book, which looks at a group of medics and scientists that he discovered early on in the pandemic that were trying to sound the alarm to the US government about the dangers of its inaction in the face of coronavirus. So do make sure to listen into that. And of course, I'd love to hear from all of you. As I've mentioned before, I always enjoy getting your questions and comments. So do keep sending them in. You can either email them to me here at podcasts at theguardian.com or you can reach me on Twitter. The handle there is at Freedland with a double E. But for now, it is goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. As always, please stay safe out there and thanks for listening.
1: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com/podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news, ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree. That's amazon.com newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants